And on the phone line right now with us, joining us from his home down in Virginia, is Mark Zuckerman from Masson and MassonSports.com. Mark, good morning. What's up? Good morning, Craig. How you doing? I'm on hanging this in there. Saturday? I gotta, I gotta ask you. Well, first of all, one of the great things about Mark Zuckerman—he's got a little, little boy named Brian who is now playing what? Uh, what what level of ball is he past? He ball. It was coach pitch this fall. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, it's 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 great to watch this kid grow up. Mark will bring him by the press box every now and then, and it's just great to see him. I got to ask you about uh, first of all, it's been a, a rough week for Major League Baseball. Uh, the passing of Roy Holiday in the tragic uh, airplane crash right uh, off the coast of Florida in the Gulf of Mexico, and some of the revelations that have come out of that. First of all, your initial thoughts when you heard. Uh, I mean, I think like everyone else, just sort of shocked. And, you know, I'll be honest, I hadn't really paid attention uh, to what Halliday had been doing uh, post-retirement and didn't realize how active he was as a as a pilot and, and with these smaller aircraft and, um, you know, obviously spent a lot of time and it had become a real passion of his. But, I, I, you know, I think like everyone else, there's sort of that uh, about a 30-minute window there where the news was out that the plane that was owned by him had crashed but they had not confirmed that he was on board, and so everybody's hoping that maybe somehow it wasn't, and then uh, I think deep down you, you had a hunch that it probably was. It, but, you know, here's a guy, and, and I'm, I guess if nothing else, I've been glad to see how uh, much attention he's gotten this week for really what a phenomenal pitcher he was. And it's just been interesting to go back and look at his career and realize that this wasn't a traditional career. It took him a while in Toronto to sort of figure it out and become who he was. And then the peak that he had at the end in Toronto and then those first few years in Philadelphia were really as good as we've seen in this era of pitching, at least. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, is this a Hall of Famer? Probably. And uh, I think, if nothing else, people are now going to really appreciate just how great of a pitcher he was. And then, uh, again, without being someone who had gotten to know him personally at all, listening and reading to what everyone who did know him, what they had to say about him, about what a tremendous person he was on top of that, it just uh, makes it all the more tragic. Well, you, you, I, I certainly dealt with him when he pitched for both the Blue Jays and the Phillies in, in both clubhouses. Uh, but, I, but I was looking at the numbers, and you mentioned Hall of Fame, uh, 203 and 105, uh, a 3.38 ERA, a winning percentage percentage of 6.59, 3.20 win seasons, and he led the league in innings pitch four times. So from that standpoint, I've been. I think the only thing that really kind of blurts out to me, know that he's not a Hall of Famer, is the 203 wins. I think you have to do a little bit better than that. But certainly, as you know, by watching him with the Phillies and 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 we saw him with the Blue Jays. Uh, there were some years there where he was just as dominant as everybody. And everybody, remember what they used to say about Pedro Martinez? And, well, the win total isn't that great, but here's a guy that over maybe a 10-year stretch was as dominant as anybody. Yeah, and, you know, there was that period. And, and again, I mostly followed him once he went to the Phillies. So he was facing the Nationals a lot. And there was that stretch there where if he was on the mound that night, you stopped to watch because you had a hunch that something special was going to go on. It reminds me a little bit of what Max Scherzer did in the last few years uh, in just that chance at complete domination. And, you know, again, it's remarkable that it took him a long time before he finally reached the postseason for the first time 
And then when he did, what did he do in his first career postseason start? One of the all-time great outings <laughs> of all time you know, exactly. against the Reds. Um, so it, it, it will be interesting how history judges him, but I think in this era of uh, obviously pitching stats aren't the same as they used to be, and we have to view them a little differently in terms of longevity and win total and everything else. Um, this is a guy who I think is going to go down as one of the very best of his time. No question about it, and uh, he was a joy to watch, a sort of special. You know what, and I really kind of even think that I'm with you, and I know you said you basically saw him with the Phillies, uh, but maybe I didn't appreciate what I was seeing when he was with the Blue Jays, uh, but you certainly appreciate it with what he did with Philadelphia and especially the run that they had uh, at, at that point in time. Yeah, uh, and and maybe it took uh, that trade for him to sort of get into more of the national spotlight. Um, the Blue Jays were always a team that was kind of under the radar, usually were around 500. It wasn't until more recently that they became contenders again. Uh, so maybe it, it had to happen of him going to Philadelphia on a world championship team that was a perennial contender there uh, for him to get his due. And uh, like I said, I think above all else, what's, what's been most um, interesting and, uh, you know, I think what everyone's going to ultimately appreciate is, on top of all that, everything that we've read and heard about him now in the last week is about what a tremendous person he was, what a great father and husband, a great teammate. And I think it was um, it have been Brandon McCarthy, the Dodgers pitcher, who tweeted this line. I thought it was a great description of him. Uh, Roy Halladay was your favorite player's favorite player. Yeah, there was a ton of respect for him within the game, and I think uh, if you asked any athlete, that means more to them than anything else. Yeah, and and that's probably the one thing you take out of all of this is just what some of the other players, uh, you know, were saying about him. Because while while we get a chance to go down into the clubhouse and talk to players, we're we're, we're not there certainly to get that kind of a feel for what the clubhouses are like. Uh, you know, before or after games in terms of, you know, their private time. Uh, so, so when somebody's saying that about you, uh, that gives you kind of an idea of what kind of a guy he was, what kind of a player he was, and what he meant to his team. Yeah, just a tremendous teammate. And um, it, it, it's it, someone who's going to be really sorely missed, I think, in this, in this game. And um, you hate that it would take something like this to – sort of bring his name back into the fold and get people to fully appreciate what he was. Um, but, boy, you, you wish he would have been around a lot longer uh, so that we all could have more time to um, to appreciate it and that he could have had more time with his family um, to appreciate that side of his life post-baseball. We're talking with Mark Zuckerman here on the Bat Around, and uh, i got to get your thoughts, really, because we haven't talked since then, uh, the World Series. It certainly, you know, a little anticlimactic in Game 7, but uh, that takes absolutely nothing away from the kind of series it was uh, with the uh, you know the Houston Astros uh, winning that thing in seven games. No, that was a tremendous series. And yeah, maybe we won't remember Game 7 as being a classic, but we're going to remember the rest of that series <laughs> as right. being an absolute classic. I mean, those are some of the wildest uh, playoff games I have ever seen. And it... it, it you almost didn't need another one of those because it would have felt like too much at that point. You kind of needed a, a more normal game at some point there. Uh, the the power that was displayed, the ability to come back when down late in games, the maneuvering that both teams had to do to try to get through those innings and get the final outs. I mean, look at 
ultimately what the Astros did, what it took for them to become World Series champions. They had a great lineup, of course. They had a great top of their rotation in uh, Verlander and Keuchel. But their bullpen was a complete shambles yeah. at the end, and they still won. And how did they do it? By some real creativity on A.J. Hinch's part to use guys like Charlie Morton and Lance McCullers Jr. and Brad Peacock, a guy that we, uh, we know from the, yeah. the Nationals a few years back, and to say, you know what? Uh, I don't care if you're coming into the game in the fifth inning or the sixth inning. You're going to keep going. If you're effective, I'm going to let you keep going. I'm not worried about trying to manage this the way you normally would with a bullpen. It was a remarkable thing to watch, and I'm not saying that that's suddenly going to become a trend now because I would think it was a unique case where they just really didn't have late-inning relievers they could trust to get those out. But it was to me, it was cool to see a team do it a different way like that and not just stick to a plan and have to adjust on the fly um, and all the credit to them. I mean, they earned that title because they poured everything they had into that. They used everybody they had. Uh, they used everybody in different roles. And that, that really was an impressive uh, title for that franchise to win. Well, you know, you and I have talked about this uh, again, and that's the the kind of the old school versus new school. It was nice to see A.J. Hinch manage from his gut. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And And what's funny is this is a team – and a franchise that was built maybe more than any other in baseball on analytics. Around yeah. analytics. yeah. Uh, that's how they built this team. That was the whole basis of the tearing it down a few years ago, starting from scratch, bringing in a lot of non-traditional uh, people to run the front office who didn't necessarily have a scouting background, but had a lot of stats based background and look, it, it, it worked. And in the end, I think it's proof that you need both sides of it to be successful. Um, you can't deny that in today's game, the analytics do not play a key role because, of course, uh, they do. But when it really comes down to it, these guys are human beings. And when they're on the biggest stage and things are starting to go haywire out there, there's no computer and no manual that's going to tell you exactly how to get through that and how to win games in October. And you're right, you do have to manage games based on feel at that point, A.J. Hinch did a brilliant job of that, recognizing what was working and saying, well, hang on a second. If this is working, why would I want to change that? Right. And just going with it. And uh, it, it was a, really a remarkable thing to watch. And a lot of that comes from knowing your personnel and knowing what they can do. And I, I loved Brad Peacock. Uh, after the one game, he just he looked over there. He said, don't take the ball from me. <laughs> he said, mm-hmm. yeah. I want the yeah. ball. <laughs> Yeah, and that's who he was when we first saw yeah. him come up. Uh, that, that was very cool to see a guy. It took him a long time. He was a 41st-round pick, if I, if I remember right, of the Nationals way back in 2006. Right. Um, worked his way up, finally made the big leagues, was part of the Gio Gonzalez trade, uh, wound up going to Houston, and um, you know, good for him to, to play that kind of role. Good for Charlie Morton, a guy who was really well-liked around the game. Um you know, it was a very easy team to root for, the Astros, I think, both because of the history of the organization, but also the people and the personalities on that team that you, got, you sort of got to know over the course of the month of October. Mark, let me ask you about Dave Martinez. Now he takes over the Nationals uh, after replacing Dusty Baker, who wasn't brought back. Uh, this week they uh, announced uh, a lot of his coaching staff, uh, Chip Hale, 
Obviously, uh, you know, he's going to be the bench coach, but uh, here's a guy that's got managerial experience. Derek Lilliquist comes over as the uh, pitching coach, and uh, ironic, that just seemed to be a swap, for, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, you don't see pitch, trades of pitching coaches very often. That was an unusual one, but that's the way it worked out. That's the way it worked out. Uh, again, we can go through these guys. Uh, Bobby Henley, obviously, is the, is the lone holdover, uh, but, but when you look at maybe what the learners were thinking here, how quickly it changed. It goes from, uh, you know, Mike Rizzo telling us, uh, you know, before game two that, yeah, we're, we're expecting to talk to Dusty. Everything looks like it's uh, on track. And then all of a sudden they don't win that series. And, and then he's out the door. Uh, it, it appears that this was a, a learner's decision and not necessarily Mike Rizzo's. Yeah, and I think that kind of became clear uh, pretty quickly after the move was made. And Rizzo would get out there and say what he had to say and be a good, uh, good team employee. But I think you know if you, as, as I know you have followed them all year long, and no Mike Rizzo, no Dusty Baker, that was a good relationship between the two of them. And I really don't think that the result of a couple of games there at the end was going to change uh, Rizzo's mindset about who he thought should manage this team. Now, you know, look, that said, I think we all have to acknowledge that the Nationals, as good as they have been, that they have underachieved when it comes to October. This is a team that, quite frankly, looked like they were a better team than the Cubs in in the playoffs and outplayed them in a lot of ways and even arguably outmanaged them in that series and ultimately didn't win it. And so, you can understand why ownership would look at this and say, um, we need to get over that hump. This isn't good enough anymore. Now, the problem was you make that kind of move, and it doesn't matter who the next manager was going to be. There was already going to be a lot of pressure on this team in 2018 to win based on the history, based on the fact that Bryce Harper and Daniel Murphy are entering their contract years. So you knew there was going to be pressure on them, and now – they have put even more pressure on them to win because they've essentially said it's not good enough anymore just to win your division. It's going to cost the manager and his coaching staff their jobs. We're going to bring in somebody else, and now you know what? The bar has been set. You have to win it all. And that's a tough thing to ask of anybody. I don't care how good of a manager you are, how good of coaches you have, how good of players you have. Only one team can win every year. The best team has maybe a 20% chance at the start of the season, of winning it all. And so it's a tough thing to ask of them. And how are they all going to handle it, both the players and then Dave Martinez himself, that kind of pressure knowing what is expected of them this year? It's a, it's going to be a, a tough challenge for them to overcome. Well, and, you know, you look at the playoffs just in general with the way, number one, the format is, number two, how the games play themselves out. I mean, you, you just look at game five, against the Cubs. You've got a 4-1 lead. Max Scherzer comes in the game. He gets the first two outs. You know, he gives up a bloop, a, a, a double down the line to a left-handed hitter. Uh, and then, of course, you have the, the catcher's interference, which isn't called. Uh, who knows how that shapes the inning. Uh, there's just a lot of things that can happen in postseason games that no matter how good you are, you can't plan for. Jose Lobatone getting picked off a of first base in the eighth inning. I mean, he gets back to the bag, but his foot comes off the bag. So, yeah. I mean, these are all things that you just can't 
prepare for? Yeah, and the great question, we'll never know the answer to this, is if any one of those things goes differently and the Nationals win that game, is Dusty Baker still the manager of this team? We don't know how that would have gone. but we, No, um, and, and I mean, is, is taking the next step going to be what's good enough, or do they have to get to the World Series? You know, obviously, if they win the World Series, then you, you've answered your question, but I mean, I just don't get it. I mean, you, you look at the three guys who got fired, and I understand that there were situations in Boston with Farrell and also Dave Dombrowski, where Dombrowski said it didn't make any difference if we won the whole thing. Farrell was not coming back. And then there's obviously a rift a little bit between Girardi and, and Brian Cashman in New York. But, but again, it's just to me, it's one of those things where be careful what you wish for. You know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, and and especially look, Dave Martinez may be a great manager. We don't know that he, but he might be. He certainly has the right pedigree. He's uh, played under and coached under some really good, really successful managers. He's won a World Series himself uh, as a coach, and so I think that counts for something as well. But until he's out there and is in that position, nobody can say with any certainty how he's going to do. Uh, and that's the great question of this, and it's why there are no guarantees there uh, and why this is a gamble. It may pay off in the end. It also, you know, look, Matt Williams impressed a lot of people when he was hired and that first year one manager of the year, and how did things turn out there? So yeah. it, it, it is a risky run with first-time managers. A lot of them... Uh, don't have success, don't win championships. A lot of these guys, A.J. Hinch included now, actually win their titles in their second job and not their first job. Right. Um, but what, what I do like about the way they assembled this is, again, if you're going to get a first-timer, this is a guy who has the, the pedigree, a guy who a lot of people around baseball felt like it was only a matter of time before he became a manager, and he's won. And you've surrounded him now with a coaching staff of guys with experience and experience in October having won titles as well. Derek Lilliquist was on the Cardinal staff when they won the World Series, also when they went to the World Series again in 2013. Uh, Chip Hale has been around for it. Uh, Tim Bogar, uh, Kevin Long, the hitting coach, won a World Series uh, when he was hitting coach of the Yankees. He went to a World Series as hitting coach of the Mets. So there's a lot of success there guys who've been there and done that. Does yeah. that matter? Does it actually make a difference? I don't know. But if you were going to make this kind of change, you had to get these hirings right, not just the manager, but the entire staff. And I think they've done a good job of bringing in the best possible people they could, uh, given the situation. Well, certainly Long knows a little bit about Daniel Murphy. <laughs> and yes, and that was a big hire for that reason. I, I think so, no too. bigger endorser of Kevin Long and Daniel Murph, and that had to go a long way, I would imagine. I'm sure it did. And then now, what about Murph? Uh, we all of a sudden find out that this was a, a knee cleanup and not a hamstring, and now there's questions as to whether he'll even be ready for the start of the season. Yeah, and this is one of those tricky things. It doesn't happen. Not a lot of ballplayers have had this microfracture surgery. Um, it's a little bit of a, a tricky thing. It's something that my understanding is that it's typically going to be at least six months of recovery. Uh, so now you're talking right around April that uh, would be the full six months. And it's not necessarily one of those that has a track record that you can say, okay, once he gets through that rehab, 
he's fine, never an issue again. This could be something that plagues him. Remember, he's starting to get up there in age as well. I think he's going to be 33 this year. Right. Um, it's a little bit of a concern. Now, maybe it, it works out. Maybe he misses a little bit the start of the season, but you know, has plenty of time to get himself going and uh, be his old self by the end of the season. But I think the Nationals have to be careful there and have to have a solid backup plan, whether that's Wilmer Defoe, whether that's bringing back Howie Kendrick, whether it's somebody else. I think they can't just assume that Daniel Murphy is, number one, going to be healthy the entire season, and number two, going to be the Daniel Murphy that we've come to know the last two seasons. It would be a shame if in the third and last year of his contract that that doesn't pan out, but uh, they, I don't think they can take that chance. I think they need to give themselves a solid backup option in case he isn't the guy that we've come to know. Well, it's funny because you, you, you look at everybody that got hurt last year, and whether it was a Brian Goodwin, whether it was a Wilmer Defoe, some of these guys that just performed – uh, that you didn't expect to get that kind of production out of, that bodes well if Murphy is down for a little bit. Sure, and I think Defoe has earned the opportunity to maybe step in and be that guy. Um, but, you you know, they 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 got to give themselves as many options as they can within reason. You can't go and spend a fortune on bench guys you might not need. But, um, you know, if Murphy isn't ready, I would think that Defoe is a solid choice to get that opportunity because really – this year is going to be about evaluating Wilmer as well. Um, even if Murphy was healthy, they have a decision to make on whether they want to resign him or not as he gets well into his 30s. And if not, what's your alternative? Is Defoe the long-term answer at second base? I think that's something that they could use this season to help identify and determine if what we saw in glimpses last year is legit and if he is ready to take that next step. Our final few minutes with Mark Zuckerman from MassInSports.com, and uh, Bonds has got a quick question for you. Yeah, Mark. Um, it's actually a question for both of you. Uh, Craig, you and I talked about the uh, free agent situations. One position that we didn't mention was the catcher situation, obviously. Matt Wieters picked up the option, so he's staying with the Nationals. But who's going to be in the backup role as a catcher? Because I believe Lobotone's a free agent mm-hmm. this year. So we know – the catcher position did not produce much offense this past season, and I wonder what options do the Nationals have either within their organization or outside in the rest of the major leagues for that second catcher position, or will they re-sign Lobotone? Yeah, this is going to be a little bit of a tricky situation. Um, I do think Lobotone is going to end up elsewhere. Um, as a free agent, I think they've seen what he can be. He really struggled last year. Everybody loves the guy. He's great in the clubhouse. Um, but he really struggled at the plate and surprisingly struggled at the, behind the plate mm-hmm. as well, which was not his reputation. And I think if you knew you had uh, an elite starting catcher who was going to start 120, 130 games and be really productive, then you could live with a number two who doesn't do as much for you. But given the season weeders had, I think the Nationals have to have a number two guy who in theory could step up and take over as number one if Matt struggles again, they have to be prepared to make that move. And so, to me, the real question here is, are they ready to give Pedro Severino that opportunity mm-hmm. to be that guy? Or, if not, then they are going to have to look elsewhere, and now you're going to be spending more money to have another catcher, whether it's a Jonathan Lucroy who's out there, uh, Wellington Castillo. Would they make a trade for like a JT Real Muto of the Marlins? I mean, these are all good quality catchers, but 
you already have one making ten and a half million dollars on your roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have an unlimited budget. If Weeders ends up not starting at some point along the way, you're going to have ten million dollars on your bench. How much else are you going to spend on a catching position? So, uh, I, my guess is unless there's a real clear upgrade out there, um, somebody that that they just feel like we have to go get, and I'm not sure there is that guy, then I would not be surprised if they let Severino start the season as the number two guy. Mm-hmm. They hope that Weeders does bounce back from what was, you know, admittedly the worst season of his career. But if not, then be prepared to uh, to give Severino the starting job at some point along the way. One other question for me before I let you go, and that's the uh, back end of that bullpen. Uh, Brandon Kinsler is a free agent. Uh, do they re-sign him and kind of keep those three together? What, what do you think? I think they'd love to do it. The question is going to be if you're Kinsler, uh, and you're a free agent now coming off a year in which, remember, he had 29 saves because most of those came with the Twins. Are there going to be teams that offer him a better deal and an opportunity to pitch at the end of games? Mm-hmm. The Nationals probably are not going to offer that. They're going to offer the seventh inning role again. and So it's going to be up to him whether that matters uh, or whether he's willing to come back in a quote-unquote lesser role, even though we know those are extremely important roles, and keep that the three-headed monster at the back of the bullpen together. Um, I would not be surprised if they go elsewhere only because here's a guy into his 30s who is a pitch-to-contact guy. He was really effective at it last year, great at getting ground balls. But as we've seen the pattern around baseball right now when it comes to relievers is you want swing-and-miss guys. That's mm-hmm. what Doolittle is. That's what Madsen is. Um, those are more likely to sustain success over time than the guys who rely on weak contact, as Kinsler does. And so I just wonder if they're going to want to commit the money that it would take to bring Kinsler back when maybe there's a a hope of bringing in uh, more of a power arm instead to take that role. I think regardless, they need to bring in another lefty. I think that was sort of exposed in the playoffs um, when Nolly Perez and Sammy Solis were called on so much. I think they need a power lefty that they can trust to pitch in those late innings and match up. Uh, regardless of if they bring Kinsler back or not. Mark Zuckerman of Mass and Sports and MassandSports.com. You can read his stuff right there. Uh, everything concerning the Washington Nationals. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time this Saturday to be with us. All right, my pleasure. Have a great weekend, guys. Uh, all right.